But yeah, I was saying I have to remind myself of the opposite of that for races and things. Like, I know you've uh, probably felt this before to a deal where you might like only get top 50% or top 25% for a half marathon or marathon or Spartan race or whatever. And then it's like, okay, it's disappointing maybe if you were going for higher than that, but you're like not comparing yourself to everybody who didn't run the race. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. definitely a biased sample for sure. Yeah. Totally. Oh, yeah. Uh, but we're yeah, we were talking about that. Oh, yeah, for podcasts. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, we got on that topic because of podcasts where it's like, yeah, I don't think those stats are factoring in all the, or the, sorry, they are factoring in all the dead podcasts too that yeah. are out there. So it's, I mean, which I guess is fair. That content still exists. There are podcasts which like are kind of timeless, but that's few and far between. You know, like if Dan Carlin doesn't do an episode for a year, He'll still get a ton, like he should still, still count good. as an active podcast in the sense that like his content totally. is yeah. still getting it's true. Yeah. Well, hey, if we're if we're top two percent, that's way better than like any grade I got in school. So yeah. I'm pretty happy. <laughs> 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 Moving up in life. <laughs> yeah. Finally performing at something. <laughs> yeah, I think like that is one uh interesting thing too about Spotify versus like the op- like there's definitely two schools of thought of like the podcast world. It's like some people who love the open ecosystem stuff. And I think there's a lot that I love about that too, but there are things that suck about it, which is the analytics are awful for yeah. podcasts. You know, it's like really hard to figure out like where people came from, who they are. Like I've heard podcasters have all sorts of uh, solutions to this, like surveying their audience and stuff, but there's no good way to get analytics the way there is for like web traffic in the podcast world. But Spotify, because it's a closed ecosystem, they do have a lot of tools that you can, you know, you get access to as a podcaster, which are like, you know, the gender breakdown, the age breakdown, what artists those people are listening to, uh, how long they listen, right? Are they listening just to like the first two minutes and then quitting? Or are they going through and like actually listening to, you know, half or or your full episode, which I think for a show like ours makes a big difference. Like, are they just clicking on it because the title looks interesting? Yeah. What are our yeah, listeners, we, what are they jamming to before and after? Oh, it's, it's usually um, kind of sad, but yeah, we'll... <laughs> <laughs> Why is it sad? It's usually just like the, exactly what you would expect in terms of just main, like probably the top five mainstream Oh, artists. like mainstream pop music. Uh, yeah, okay. so it's like nothing special. Are you right? saying we're a, are we a fucking normie podcast? That's, oh what I'm, that's what I'm saying, <laughs> that we are. Um, I, you know, one thing I wish oh, they did, I wish they, let guys. You see, I, I wish they let you see what other podcasts... People were listening to. So I know that would be cool. That would be, be cool. so useful. Okay, here are our top five. There, this is what I mean. You're gonna see exactly what I mean. Drake, Eminem, Kanye, Eminem, Kendrick, and Taylor Swift. I was not <laughs> expecting Eminem. <laughs> yeah, Eminem is an interesting. Eminem one. is a surprising one. I don't think I've ever seen that in our top five, but maybe yeah. I don't know. <laughs> what happened people get out of well, a down Eminem, made you think episode and they're like all right we gotta lose yourself just to put myself back up yeah. <laughs> well eminem's the best-selling hip-hop artist of all time right so yeah i mean if he, i don't know, know if he's at number one number two but he's in that he's in that uh obviously in that top yeah. group good lord he's the best-selling by a margin he's 227 million records sold and second place is drake with 152 wow. so eminem's wow. the most popular by 50 percent. wow <laughs> power law that's nuts 
Yeah. But you know, it, it's, it's really interesting. Like uh, I was just gonna say, looking at this quickly, like, cause Eminem has a lot of albums out, right? Like I think he's released at, like at least eight or nine and, and Drake has put out a good number two, but like number six on this list is Nicki Minaj and she's only done wow. like three albums, right? Like sales by album count. She might be like one of the highest. It's kind of cool. how does this work with streaming? Like, what counts as an album sale? That's what I was. I know. I've always wondered that too. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. A deal. We were talking about this in the chat. I just like the the more time I spend on TikTok and Instagram, I'm just yeah. like Twitter is a miserable place. Like, I don't know if I want to be there anymore. <laughs> I don't know why I'm there. I, I have all these narratives in my head that I need to be there for work and shit, but I just don't know if that's true anymore. <laughs> I'm there for the aliens, but that's also why I want to not be there anymore. <laughs> like, oh, another fighter jet? <laughs> like, I'm like, in my living room, we have like a nice plant. I'm reading a book. Nothing is wrong. And then I'm like, what the fuck happened over Lake Huron? I'm like, yeah. I'll, I'll find out. You know, like, I don't, yeah, I don't need to know right this now. Is almost, <laughs> this is almost a great segue into the flying cars. But I do think I don't want to like let that part of the conversation go. I think Nat's theory is right. Uh, like that we were chatting about, which is the sensitivity is yeah, probably I, turned up, even though it's once, a less fun yeah. explanation. That's, but that, love, that, yeah, it's it's not such a disappointing right. explanation. But yeah. the, the theory, by enough. the way, that we were talking about was basically that, um, and this isn't my theory, I saw it from somebody on Twitter, but I have no idea what the source was, <clears throat> was basically that after the first balloon was found, they turned up the sensitivity for all of their, you know, UFO detecting radar type things. And then they started picking up a bunch of other anomalies. And so there might've just been these balloons floating around for years and the sensitivity was set so low on the tracking equipment to avoid catching birds and things. And now they've turned it up and now they're like, Oh shit, there's like a lot of spy balloons out there. So it, yeah, it's less yeah, fun. It, it just makes it, sense. Yeah. <laughs> Way less fun of an explanation. <laughs> but does it make sense? Because birds move at like a different speed. They're a different size. Like I I mean, I think maybe, right? Like I because like I, you, I assume if it's if it's just broad radar, yeah, you know, scanning for large moving objects. Like, I don't, I don't think it could tell the difference between something that's kind of, you know, like triangulary bird shaped and something circular shaped, right? It's not, you know, it's not doing like high def photography, right? It's just tracking movement. Yeah. I the feel other like thing so, and, if, if, and if they had never calibrated it to a balloon yeah. type movement, they wouldn't have yeah. been looking for that, right? So, so not just that, Nat. I think the other thing that also needs to be considered is if these are spy things, which they seem to be. Uh, they probably have some kind of like radar dodging or like, you know, reflective. Yeah. Some yeah. type, some type of material that probably makes it harder to detect them. So Can you put that yeah. on a balloon. I'm, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. Like I, I think, even I read think something you guys about, are not fun and wrong. <laughs> I, I had, I had read aliens is a more fun explanation. I, I had, cardinal sins. <laughs> yeah. I, I had read something about even like the the fact that like the height of, at which some of these balloons were. I think the first one was at like you know above forty thousand feet. It they were actually shocked that it didn't explode like on its mm. own huh. much much earlier because like the the uh, the way a normal balloon is, I think like the helium gets too energized at that altitude. And then, or the pressure builds up too high, and then the balloon explodes typically. So they like had done something with to deal with the so pressure. 
a lot of the balloons are supposed to operate between 80 to 120k feet. But, oh, wow. Okay. So 40 yeah. is, is not the normal. But I'm not saying this because I know anything about balloons. It's like I read about this the way I read about the 737 Max and became an expert for eight days. So <laughs> uh, I have no idea if that's actually true. But it doesn't but, sound that crazy to me because like we've seen high altitude balloons in non-military contexts be used. Like right. didn't the Red Bull guy jump out of a high altitude mm-hmm. balloon? Like that didn't explode. I'm like, it's clearly it's possible. Yeah, yeah. I think the the balloons are just a psyop to distract us from Ohio. That's really what's going on. Man, that <laughs> actually does not covered really in the news except in the New York Times. <laughs> <laughs> that actually does seem very serious, though. It seems yeah. really bad. Yeah. yeah, really bad. I'm glad we're not going to Carnegie Mellon anymore. It seems like yeah, it's right out right near that. Although the way the river flows, is- I think it was going the other way. But the air is still going to get yeah definitely some effect. Yeah, but the yeah. water pollution is like the really bigger issue i think yeah yeah there's i wonder if like people who watch the news feel like this all the time yeah like, last probably. week i've just been like my head's just scrambled i'm like aliens balloons like this is exploding this isn't going right it's the most news i've read in ages and yeah. i feel like i felt ill at one point I, I was messaging someone on twitter i was like is it aliens and i was like how am i even asking this question there's no way i'll know like why yeah. am i worried about this <laughs> i just <laughs> I also love the idea that like some alien species would, you know, fly millions of light years, like, and then get shot down by an F-22. Yeah. Well, the right? F-22s are very <laughs> impressive, Nat. <laughs> so such a funny idea. I know. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, man, you guys got to read, we got to do three body problem. We will. There, there are, we will. There, there's a very relevant scene in the book oh. to this story. And I guess that's all I can say because I don't want to spoil anything. Yeah, no, so. we're definitely going to do that. We're definitely going to do an episode on it. Uh, I'm excited because now I get to reread them. Yeah. Everyone like, set, always has great things to say about it. I mean, you've been talking about it for years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've been I've been reading some more like popcorn sci-fi recently, which is fun too. But like the intensity of the science and the kind of world building in Three Body Problem is so good. Hmm. that it's just kind of like it's, it's another level above right kind of like what i hear people say about uh dune and foundation which i still need to read yeah last year i asked a few people uh i was like if you could force me to read a few books what would they be and two people named i, I gave them five books it's like five books you can force me to read hmm. and two people gave three of their five to the three body problem wow yeah and i was like okay like I still haven't read it, <laughs> but it's been it's been higher on my list as a result of that exchange. That's great. Which also is a really revealing question, by the way. I would recommend asking people that. I got some really good recs. How many religious texts did you get? Uh, I only asked like two religious people. So okay. and and they didn't recommend it because they knew I was already reading the Torah, so got it didn't come up. Yeah, I and honestly might recommend. Up. And this is a segue to the book we're doing, but I honestly might recommend Where's My Flying Car <laughs> as a non for somebody who book. For somebody who works in tech, I would absolutely like, a, yeah. you know, th- this is a very, uh, for like, this is kind of like a, a, a condescending thing to say as a non-technical person, but for like everybody doing ads optimization at Facebook, you know, it's like, like read this and go like build something fucking real. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think like, I think even beyond that, just in terms of like, I mean, yeah, okay, so that is a great, that's like a level one 
for sure. Level one recommendation. I think it's applicable beyond that because so much of at least what I took from the book was we've kind of created this self-fulfilling prophecy for ourselves of like thinking certain things aren't possible. So we don't work on them and then no one's motivated to go work on them because they don't seem possible. It's kind of like the ROI thing. I think Dil mentioned in the end of the last uh, episode Mm -hmm. where you were saying the reason people invest more in like software-based solutions or or kind of like this traditional, what we think about as tech uh, solutions versus like nuclear or faster airplanes or like, you know, new energy sources. It's because the ROI is easier to get. That's definitely true, but it's also like a self-fulfilling prophecy of we don't as a culture really believe we can do these things. So we don't, it like then nobody works on it because nobody believes it because there's no rewards. And then it's like just a cycle that keeps perpetuating itself. I would wonder, like, I'd be curious to see the boom supersonic pitch deck. Right. Right. Because like for someone who's weighing the investment of like a marginal dollar between, I don't know, a stripe light company and boom, like what's the pitch? I'd be very curious to see it. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, because to to your point, Neil, he has this good quotation from uh, Arthur C. Clarke, where it's basically that like a lot of predictions fail due to failure of nerve or failure of imagination and it feels like both are pretty endemic at this point right where on the one hand there is that failure of imagination where it's like okay we're gonna do these like little incremental steps and you have very few people who are starting companies that are like oh we're gonna land rockets or like like varda is a good example right so okay we're gonna build space factories or um you know there's like a few companies in that vein, but it feels like a lot more in the, okay, we're going to make another like photo sharing app for your phone. And then there's the, there's some of the failure of nerve side of it too. It yeah. feels like, which like P- Peter Thiel had a good thing about this in zero to one, basically that the whole like fail fast, lean startup type methodology is like antithetical to doing really big, impactful things because the only way you do super big, impactful things is by having an incredibly, like destructive potential risk of failure, right? It's like, like what you, we talked about in comfort <laughs> crisis, right? It's like, yeah, yeah. Whatever, Masagi, right? Masogi, something like that. Yeah, yeah. We're going to do a very safe, easy thing versus that has a high chance good. of success. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, I do wonder how much of it is a pipeline problem. Like there are more people suited to developing photo apps than there are folks who can build, you know, space factories. And that, that split happens earlier on. Right. Like you're going to go to high school. And then like I had a friend from high school who sophomore year decided he really liked physics. And then from then on just did physics always. He did like physics honors, physics AP, did all the physics like SAT2. Then he went and did physics undergrad at Columbia. Then he did a physics PhD at Harvard. Now he does uh, quantum computing stuff. And uh, I won't name him because it'll be really clear who he is because the company is doing like R&D and he's like one of three employees there. <laughs> but um, yeah, he's in the private sector doing like quantum computing R&D and like building real shit. Um, but that was, you know, to get to where he's at in in quantum computing, which is so nascent, it was this t- decade long journey. I, no, no one else was doing it. Everyone else was like, yeah, yeah. I was going to see yeah. us. Yeah, I wonder what that's about. It does feel like, like even career ambush ambitions are like a little and maybe this was always true oh well, i guess the difference now is this is kind of the same as like being a, a a company man right like and that that is what most people did right and there were like generally fewer startups so there is kind of like a company man version of a startup where you're like 
you know, doing a, eh, I don't want to be critical of like just everything, but <laughs> they're, they're, you know, it's, it's like the, the B2B SaaS tool, right? It's like objectively yeah. very useful, but it's not like yeah. totally changing the world. Right. It's like, like if we have a sauna, do we also need Monday? Right. Like yeah. how much of a difference is that making? Right. But it's not necessarily a, so it's like, where, where does that drive to go after those big things come from? But like to a deal's point, it requires such an insane amount of like studying and knowledge. And then where does like that come from? Because it does feel like, yeah. like, I, like I'll, I, I'm not one of those people. Right? <laughs> like I don't, well, there's also, I'm, there's also an element of this that involves, I think interest rates. I think that it, it does play a role in here. Like it sounds like, it sounds like several layers removed, but I think it's kind of like a foundational layer to this. So a lot of like a deal to your point about like photo apps, for example, part of the reason there are so many photo apps or any apps, right? And like so much demand for the engineers building them is that there are people funding the creation of those apps. Those people are all hoping they're funding like the next Instagram because interest rates are so were so low for so long, right? They were putting their money into VC funds because you couldn't get a return otherwise. And then all those VC funds are taking a bet that they're hoping is going to be a, a major payoff. I think for most of American history, interest rate, I, I could be wrong. I don't know about the history of interest rates, but I think they were probably closer to like five, six, seven percent than zero, which means you could actually get pretty good return, which means you probably had to make some like I, I guess I guess they weren't people weren't putting money in VC funds in 1960, yeah. probably, right? Because there wasn't probably much they could invest that money into, but then also like where you got those business returns would be real world projects, probably. Actually, before we go down this rabbit hole, we should contextualize this. Like talk about the book? Well, yeah, like the, why, why we're, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think it might be a little hard to follow. Is this uh, a book? We, oh shit, we're talking about a book today, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I know, I know I cut you off, but I think it might be getting difficult to follow. So the book is Where's My Flying Car by J. Stores Hall. And the two sentence version of it, and I'll let you go back now, is uh, we could have had flying cars. And instead, we saw a total stagnation, which he calls the strangulation of the physical world. And it's because we did not invest in uh, atomic nuclear energy, nanotechnology. And what was the third one? Energy, energy, nano, and aviation. Sort of like. Yeah, like yeah, I mean the flying time. car transportation thing that he talks yeah. about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, yeah. It, a lot of it reduces to we stopped building physical world things and we stopped expanding energy production and consumption. Those kind of feel like the two. He, he's got a good quotation here that I could just read from the book. The Cerberus blocking us from attaining the future we were promised has three heads: the bureaucratic structure of science and technology, the ergophobic religion of the Eloy Eloy Agonis. I, I hate that phrase uh, and the strangling red tape of regulation. And then later on, he says, we could have had flying cars in 1940 before World War II. We could have started on nanotech in 1960. We could have had we could have started on solar powered satellites in the 70s. The low hanging fruit of nuclear power was left to rot on the ground and it was sprayed with the kerosene of hysteria and ignorance. So he's like not super happy about <laughs> progress over the last 60 70 80 years and i think it's also important to mention his his background so like yeah. he's an yeah. extremely high highly qualified person like i think he has a uh i want to say nanotech like yeah he, he worked in, in nanotech, nanotech. yeah he's, and then he's an ai researcher as well right 
which is also why his like chat GPT comments were so interesting. I forgot to put that in my outline, but yeah, it was like, I didn't realize he had an AI background when I was reading the book until we got to that section. And I was like, why is he talking about this? Then realized he's an active AI researcher. Yeah. And and the, yeah, I mean, so the, the book is basically talking about, there was this wild technological future imagined in the forties, fifties and sixties. And we got some of that in communication tech, right. With the advance of the computer and, uh, cell phones and all of that, but we got almost no advancement in like the physical world stuff. And he talks about some of what we could have gotten in transportation. We'll go into that a bit. What we could have gotten in nanotechnology. He uses the example of you could basically have, you know, we think of a 3D printer today as like kind of cool, but it's an extremely lame version of what he's discussing. He's basically saying if we had continued, if we had developed like nanotech and um, kind of like self-contained factories, as he calls them at the same pace that we developed computers, you could have had a box sitting on your desk next to your laptop that could synthesize any thing you needed in the world out of like residual carbon in the air around it and a few like very basic materials you could feed it. So like he gives the example of the mRNA vaccine, right? Like Pfizer was able to figure it out in a day or two and then they had to go through all the regulation and stuff. But if we had skipped the regulation part, it could have literally been 48 hours from the virus being, you know, found in Wuhan, Pfizer synthesizing synthesizing their vaccine for it because that did take apparently about a day. And then within another 24 hours, you could have downloaded the vaccine to your printer on your desk and just printed yourself a shot for it and been vaccinated. Like, and he's, he's saying like, this isn't some like weird sci-fi fantasy thing. We understand the theory of it. We've understood it. We've understood it for decades. We just haven't made progress on it, which I, I don't know. I thought all of the nanotech stuff was particularly so wild. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. The self-replicating machines as well. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's always been the talked about in sci-fi novels, I feel like, but like the fact that I didn't realize how, far i guess we already understood how to do a lot of these things like we understood the technical side of it right i always thought oh this is like an idea like oh yeah one day we could teleport or like one day we'll have flying cars but i didn't realize how much work had already been done on the theory and we're actually we're so far from it like when i read those sci-fi things i'm like this is like emphasis on fiction but that just shows like i mean there are so many points in the book where Almost all the quotes are from sci-fi authors. Most of the ideas are saying, hey, this thing in this book that sounds crazy is real. And I left the book with the impression that like sci-fi is more sci uh, than fi. It was like very things that felt very attainable at the time instead of just, you know, whatever the fuck you could come up with. All of it was extensions yeah. of things that were in progress. Uh, but we forgot where it came from. I think everyone collectively forgot. Like this should be something you would read in like a ninth grade science class that's what i'm saying like this is what i meant when we were talking the conversation earlier like who i would give this book to it's like i actually think it's to your point of deal about people getting into those fields early on in life i think it's probably so valuable like imagine if this is your ninth grade science class like read maybe ninth grade's too early but like sometime in high school and you're deciding like what you want to go study or do in college or like do next like this would be so inspirational to go after something that's like more technical rather than 
and real world technical than go after like, I don't know, like a, another finance degree or like political science or something like that. Like there's a lot of people out there who pre-college, like before they go to college, haven't made that determination of what to go into. And then they're mm-hmm. just like, you know, they're picking based on economic opportunity or what their friends are doing or like they're influenced by like different sources. And I feel like this would be a great influence for people. Yeah. These are pretty hard fields to pivot into. Like they're not impossible, but you'd have to be financially well off and be able to take multiple years of low, no income in order to make a big career change. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. It it made me feel that way too, where it was almost like, like, yeah, I didn't realize a lot of this stuff was possible and that we had the like theoretical underpinning for it. And going back to that idea of failures of imagination and failures of nerve, it does feel like there has been this collective failure of imagination. You know, he, he talks about like if we had kept developing air travel at the pace it was developing at until the 70s, then traveling at basically 16,000 miles per hour would be relatively possible by now. And so you could do New York to L.A. in 20 minutes or something. Yeah, it was like and New York to San Francisco, 22 minutes. Exactly. And be like a, a fairly standard, just like, you know, less than 1G acceleration arc. It was basically what uh, SpaceX has talked about doing with Starship. And you could just like city hop that way using like semi spaceships, semi planes. Like, it's pretty cool. And yeah, he I mean, I think a lot of the energy usage stuff where it's like a 747 would use about as much fuel to cover the same distance more slowly. A rocket would burn it yeah. all in the first, you know, N seconds. But like the, the I don't know, he did the math on, it. I don't remember. Yeah. The total usage would be like comparable, which I, I did not, yeah. I would have not intuitively expected. That probably yeah. wouldn't be true for a New York to San Francisco hop, but like if you're doing New York to like Hong Kong, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think for that one, deal, the example he gave was like Australia to New York or something like that. It was like a very long or Australia to LA or something like it was a very long international flight. Yeah. 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 There were a couple of things like, like the, uh, the, to your point about forgetting, he has this great quotation from near the beginning of the book talking about like, he thought he'd be going to the moon in his lifetime. And he said, this is from the book. Not only am I not going to be celebrating on the moon, nobody is going there for any purpose whatsoever. Only 12 men have ever walked on the moon. All of them were born while Orville Wright still drew breath and no one had flown a jet. Like, we used to know how to do that. <laughs> we haven't yeah. gone back. It's so crazy. The, what I liked, I was something I thought about the during the early parts of the book. I was like, why is he so obsessed with the flying car? Like, why not just go into mm-hmm. these topics? Yeah, and he spent sort of so much time on, on it. What, what I sort of landed on, though, was like, the book is about nuclear energy, nanotech, and a little about aviation, but the av- aviation and transport are the inspirational hook to talk about the other topics, where if this book was just like, where's my atomic battery? I don't <laughs> think I would have particularly enjoyed it, but everything contextualized around, do you want to go to f- space? Do you want to go fast? I was like, yeah, I, I want to go fast. <laughs> yep. Tell me how. Uh, yeah, and everything else is like an enabling technology of... yeah. The flying, like, it's like you can't really get the flying car, like the mass produced flying car without like nanotech, without better energy policy and energy, energy sources. Like there's a, it, yeah, I like the way he framed that. You're totally right. The other thing that was really cool that he brought up, which is again, going back to like forgetting 
I always forget that like all these military submarines are powered by nuclear energy. Yeah. Yeah. Like I always forget about that. That like, oh, we have that in the wild already. And they stay underwater for months. Like we actually yeah. had that first. I mean, they they can stay underwater forever, I think. They like, yeah. I mean, they have to come up for air and stuff, but in terms of power, they never have to refuel. Yeah, it's like, I mean, you see that, you're just like, wait, what? We actually do have this. And as far as yeah. we know, I mean, hey, maybe there have been accidents that we've not been told. You know, I could see, I mean, that's possible. Something's classified. But as far as we know, no country with a nuclear submarine has had an accident with, with one. He, he has this great line where he says, as he's talking about that, like nuclear tech, he says, with 50 years of experience and experimentation, Isaac Asimov speculated the appliances of 2014 will have no electric cords. And that speculation was completely reasonable given the physics and the rate of technological improvement up until then. We really, really should have had atomic batteries by now. And guess what? Your iPhone would never need charging and your Tesla would have a range of 3.5 million miles. It is a possibility. That's wild. That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. And also, I think he the other thing he dispelled for me, at least, because I didn't, I don't know enough about nuclear energy, to be honest, to... Like uh, everything he was saying, I don't even know if enough to say if he's right or wrong. It just sounds awesome. The mm-hmm. myth that he dispelled for me was like my initial thought when he was saying atomic batteries was like, oh, well, then what if you just like collected enough iPhones, you could build like a nuke. But he was like, no, that's not really how it works. So yeah. that was only, helpful. It, yeah. The uranium for a battery only needs to be like two or three percent refined. But for a bomb, it has yeah. to be 98 percent refined or something. And so the the difference from what you would need to do to the uranium in a battery to get it to bomb level would be the same as what you would need to do to the like raw uranium to get it to bomb level. Yeah. yeah, I, also, I didn't know that either. I also didn't realize how like small of a meltdown or explosion risk there actually was with those things. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, yeah. You, I mean, I knew how much of a risk there too. is with, I knew how much of a risk there is with like lithium batteries. Cause that's been in the news a few times and like people talk about yeah. it, but like, yeah, I mean, and that's non-trivial. But the other thing that was crazy about the nuclear stuff is I didn't know how cheap uranium is. I don't know yeah. why. I just assumed it would be much more expensive. <laughs> well, to be fair, it doesn't have the same market pressure on it that oil has, fair. right? Yeah, that's but true. But he does have this great line in here. Let me find it. Okay. The price for jet fuel at a nearby airport is $6 per gallon. Fueling up a 747 costs $343,000. As I write, the commodity price of uranium as yellow cake is forty nine fifty per pound. Only eighty four percent is uranium, so the effective price is fifty eight dollars per pound, meaning that the seven point five terajoules needed to power a seven forty seven for the same amount of time as three hundred forty three thousand dollars of fuel would only cost eight dollars and sixty six cents. The wow. the other point he makes with that is like the weight difference. Because most of the weight on a plane is the fuel. It's not like the passengers and stuff. And so you could carry an extra 2,000 passengers or something on a 747 if it was fueled with uranium instead of fuel. Like, obviously, you can't really fit them. You'd have to reconfigure the structure of the plane. But, like, that's wild. Yeah. It's insane. The the other uranium stat that blew my mind was – I'll just read – Nuclear fuel costs are essentially trivial compared to fossil. A wind turbine uses up more lubricating oil than a nuclear plant uses uranium per kilowatt hour generated. <laughs> like the wind turbine using oil, that's a 
cutting comparison. It's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, thorium was also interesting. The thorium yeah. doesn't need enrichment. You can use all of it instead of like 1% of it. And it, we have like thousands of years of it. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess since we're on this energy topic, he has this really interesting concept in here that he calls the Henry Adams curve. Mm. So I'll read this from the book. Going back at least to the steam engines of 300 years ago, we've had a very steady trend of about 7% yearly growth in usable energy available to our civilization. The optimism and constant improvement of life in the 19th century and the first half of the 20th can quite readily be seen as predicted on this curve. To a first approximation, it can be factored into a 3% population growth rate, a 2% energy efficiency growth rate, and a 2% growth in actual energy consumed per capita. The Henry Adams curve, the century's long historical trend, can be rendered, uh, and then there's like a, a chart in the book, but basically it the energy consumption of like the world kept going up at this 7% per year until the 70s, and then it just flatlined. And a big part of his argument seems to be that the reason we've had all of this progress in the digital world and not in the physical world is because we're no longer harnessing like more energy for people to use in large part due to uh, stagnation with nuclear. And going back to the cultural stuff, I think the paradigm changed to where, cause he does talk about like the seventies, like environmentalist movements and things where mm -hmm. um, the paradigm shifted from like harnessing more energy to limiting energy use. So the incentive structure kind of changed from like, how do we go create more energy to how do we use energy more efficiently? Obviously, digital innovations don't use nearly as much energy as like flying a plane or, or you know, launching something into space. So it just kind of incentivized different things. And I think he makes a very good argument. I think, Nat, you and I had talked about this on uh, the Vaclav uh, Smil book, I forget, Energy and Civilization. Yeah, yeah. Years ago, actually, about this, where, I mean, he kind of makes the same point that, like, the amount of energy that your civilization harnesses is indicative of its wealth, essentially. Yeah. More so than even GDP. Yeah, wealth and, like, quality of living, yeah. it seems. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's, like, something that was, that's, like, not uh, thought through or, or not really, like, I think well understood is that, you know, energy is not like we always think, oh, it's good to like save energy and stuff. It's fine. It's, that's great. But it's not like you're not doing anything wrong by using energy. Like every time you no. eat, you're yeah. using energy, you know, every time you like do anything, any creature does anything, you know, they're using energy to influence the world around them. And how powerful you are as a creature is just how much energy, you know, you're able to harness. Like we all harness just by living in the age that we do way more energy than, you know, people 500 years ago. And I would yeah. hope people 500 years from now are harnessing way more energy than than we are. And yeah. what's that like science fiction? It's like the Kardashev or something like that. Uh, uh, civilizations. Isn't there like the one that's yeah, like... The three levels. The three levels. Like you're harnessing your... Yeah, type one, type two, type three. Yes. Type, yeah, type, type one is you're harnessing all the energy of your sun. Or no, all the energy of your planet. And then type two is all the energy of a star. And then okay. type three is all the energy of a galaxy. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So we're like not even type one. We're, <laughs> I, I saw some measurement. We're like 1% of type one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We have a long way to go. Long this way to go. The, the zero sum thinking is the second something feels zero sum, 
in the book, he talks about it as like moral behavior becomes very difficult unless whatever resource you're concerned about is positive sum. I've heard it elsewhere with regards to democracy is like the give and take and compromise of democracy only works mm-hmm. if the pie is growing. Otherwise oh, it's like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so if you don't have economic growth, you actually can't sustain democracy in the long run. Theoretically. I don't know if there's, it makes that sense actually, intuitively. It actually yeah. makes some I'm sense because that. then it's like, yeah. even if yeah. you lose, you're like still part of a bigger pot. Like your life is still getting better even if you lose. Whereas if it's zero yeah. sum, your life is probably tangibly getting worse in a zero sum yeah. system. Yeah. But the interesting thing with the regulation stuff, in addition to like, it's very zero sum thinking, it doesn't assume growth is like, it's well-intentioned. I think he kind of failed to capture that in the book was that he was just like, yeah, regulation sucks. And I was like, well, kind of give them a little bit, right? Like the regulations from the mindset of we don't want a regression, like we don't want waste in the rivers and like dirty air. And, but it comes at the expense of stifling future work. So it's like, if you want to prevent a regression that also prevents progress, they somehow end up doing the same thing in one swoop. And that was actually what I felt was the worst developed part of the book actually was his conversation about regulation. He was just kind of like, fuck regulation. I was like, all right, well, you're right. Like you fuck bad regulations, but I wouldn't go so far to say like, fuck all regulation. Yeah. It makes me think of like the early days of the oil boom. Have you guys read Rockefeller's biography by Ron Chernow, Titan? No, I read another book about the oil boom in general, like the early days of the oil boom. So, yeah. There, there's just one scene that I remember. Uh, it stuck with me because it was like by Pittsburgh where they, I can't remember exactly what caused this to happen, but there was a period where they were just like throwing oil into the Allegheny, like by barrel because they needed to, I think they were trying to dump it to increase prices. And so they were just like throwing it all in the river and they're like, Oh, whatever. Right. It's not our problem. Right. And it's like, that's what happens when you don't have any regulation. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like it'd be nice to have a little bit. There was a lot as a result of the book that was unclear that I'm now like, okay, I can see how this is technologically feasible, but that's the, I wish he had a chapter on this is what a good regulation would look like. Here's how you would prevent the regression while allowing progress. And it just never got there. And, I don't know enough to, I don't know if you guys have any ideas. I don't, I was kind of at a loss as well. Failure of imagination, if you will, on uh, good regulation. I do think he was directionally correct in his point about the absurd growth in the number of lawyers. It's kind of another example of like, like yeah, we can definitely have some regulation, but you know, you think about, we talk about this with politics all the time, right? Like why are bills today, these like 800 page behemoths yep. with, all these random things thrown into them where nobody can actually read them. Right. It's like the, the core operating system documents for the country with like the declaration and constitution and bill of rights and whatever, we're all like very concise. Right. And you know, they worked out fairly well. And so why do we need like 800 page bills for these like very narrow things now? Right. There's definitely a lot of, it's like for, for all the good of regulation, it does feel like maybe you know, 80%, 90% is just unnecessary bloat, probably created by lawyers for lawyers. Well, yeah, it, exactly. And then there's like the whole idea of having a bureaucratic class, essentially, that's yeah. just, you know, kind of feeding itself um, and spiraling it out of control. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, there's definitely a, uh, to your point about dumping stuff in the river, there's definitely, you know, something needed for sure to prevent things like that. But then, 
it does, I think, especially in like our type of system seem to spiral on itself because people can lobby and get rules changed. It's like, I don't, I don't want to go on like this tangent too far, but it does create some conversation around like, what is the ideal political system for this type of long-term thinking? And like, is democracy even that system? Like, I, I don't necessarily know. Um, because it does feel like this type of problem isn't just American, right? Like that was something that I thought of when I was reading this. That I was like, why hasn't another, you know, technologically advanced like Western civilization in, you know, in the world figured this out and done this? Like, why, why is this so America centric? Essentially, it was my question. Did you catch his point about like how the atomic bomb changed the progress of countries. I thought this was really interesting. I hadn't thought about it before. It, uh, remind, yeah, remind me. It, it's kind of a throwaway comment, but he basically says, let's see. Yes. For all the angst about the bomb and mutual assured destruction, they drastically changed the nature of warfare. They short-circuited the evolutionary process. It was no longer the case that a society that slid into inefficient cultural or governmental practices was likely to be promptly conquered by the baron next door. The nuclear umbrella meant that the economic, political, and moral strength of a society was no longer at a premium. So he's basically saying that Mm. once a country has nukes, even if it's falling apart, it can't easily be taken over by a like rising greater power which explains why you have a country like North Korea, for example, which by all historical, uh, you know, examples or whatever, like should have been taken over by somebody a while ago. Right. But it like basically can't be because they have, you know, some degree of nuclear capability. And you could say the same thing with like Russia too, right? Like that maybe should have been conquered by your, or some of this should have been conquered by Europe or something. Right. But it's like, they have nukes. So and, yeah, like, what, what are you can gonna you do? do? Yeah. Right. And there could be a bit of that with like the US too, where once you have that, there isn't as much of a pressure to keep like out innovating, keep pushing because it's kind of like, well, we've sort of got the Trump card, right? Like we're safe. Yeah, it's a good point. That is a good point. And that's like an evolutionary pressure almost on every country to like you basically now the evolutionary pressure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now the pressure is just how do you quickly can you get to nukes? Yeah. <laughs> right, right. So that you're, which you kind of then understand <laughs> countries pursuing, you know, their own nukes. Cause it's like, well, then you're in the club. You're in like, you're exactly. either like, yeah, if you have nukes, you're part of the, you're a sovereign nation essentially. And if you don't have nukes, you're basically a vassal state to somebody. Yeah. I did not catch that. That's so sad. Yeah. I know, right? <laughs> it just sucks. Like, I, I mean, he said something similar when it was the uh, weather control worldwide weather control or whatever oh, that was, yeah. where you like throw balloons into the atmosphere and then you can let sun through mm. or you can block it or balloons? You can focus it balloons? on the target balloons uh balloons though not balloon uh, <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> but yeah that, as soon as one country develops weather control where they can like focus the sun on some city and just burn it to a crisp or whatever it actually makes you wonder why we don't spend I mean, I, and maybe there's like part of the black budget and stuff that like we don't get access to. But like, this seems like like classic game theory, though, right? It's like if you don't get it first, somebody else, like whoever gets it first, is kind of the king of the world. Well, the prerequisites for it were like you need this kind of nanotech, you need like this right. material science stuff. Which who knows? I mean, I'm I, sure. I guess where I'm going with that is like, couldn't <laughs> have you have you guys seen that Futurama episode where they're like 
trying to, I don't remember exactly how this comes up, but they're like trying to reverse climate change. And so one person proposes putting a giant mirror in space to like reflect some of the sun's rays. And then like a teeny tiny asteroid like hits the mirror (laughs) and tilts it. So then it ends up like focusing the rays, just like burning off part of the (laughs) It seems like somebody would have tried to put a lens in space by now, right? Like maybe it's just too hard. It's probably too hard to launch a glass lens like that, right? Like wasn't there a Bush era, like putting sulfur in the air thing? Well, the sulfur in the air is a potential climate change solution. There was Reagan's Star Wars stuff where they wanted to put lasers on satellites so they could, which honestly is kind of a badass idea. I feel like <laughs> yeah, it seems it like was the maybe new a few level years of nuclear too early, but it totally. seems like yeah. Death Star, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's like, I mean, it was basically a similar idea to Israel's uh, Iron Curtain because they, they were going to have laser right. satellites that could shoot missiles out of or the Or Iron air. Dome, Iron Dome. Or Iron Dome, yeah. Iron Curtain, something else, yeah. <laughs> Dude, the, the thing that blew my mind on the climate change stuff where he was like, yeah, if you actually stop burning all fossil fuels, you will strangle plants and like you'll need to start building like coal factories near cornfields. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is actually something I think the climate change people do definitely get wrong uh, where they've made like carbon, like CO2, like enemy number one, whereas for most of actually Earth's history, like it is like we're actually living in a good time for vegetation growth from the CO2 well, yeah. Like, yeah, from Apparently the concentration the, perspective. I've seen that argument too. It's like if CO2 did go up by one or two percent, like it, it would be bad for a lot of human civilization Humans, stuff. Yes. But for a lot <laughs> yeah. of plant life, it would actually be like awesome. <laughs> yeah, now you and I have talked about this. It's like climate change, like is yeah, like Earth will be okay. It's like yeah. humans might not <laughs> yeah, be, Earth will which be is fine. a valid point. Which is a valid well, point. And also it's, it's like yeah. A lot of humans will be fine, like coastal humans, right? Like if you've got a penthouse in Miami, you're going to be sad. But if you're living inland... Penthouse like, might be fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Depends on how you corrosion might, resistant that... Yeah, it's yeah. going to be a little like Venice, but... <laughs> My, I, I don't know this for sure. I'm curious if either of you do, but I would assume that not all CO2 is the same, right? Like you, No, the, CO2 is the same. CO2 no, is, no, no, but no, no, a lot no, of no, emissions I, are like methane yeah. and... No, that's not what I meant. More like if it's in like the upper atmosphere versus located somewhere else, like if it is in a high concentration where like it Mm. cannot be accessible by plant life, right? Then it would have a greenhouse gas effect. Yeah, but I think it would settle. No, I I, I don't don't know. know. Yeah, I'd have to look at that, but I'd be shocked if that like it settled at different layers, like the same compound would settle at different layers. It wouldn't really make that much sense. We could launch a bunch of balloons with fans on them. And then they can blow the CO2. <laughs> All right. If, if whoever says balloon next is uh, taking a shot, getting kicked out of this. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. What oh. else should we talk about from the book? There's like a lot of stuff to talk about here. Oh, there's so much. I mean, we haven't even touched on the aviation innovation stuff from like the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Like, uh, my yeah. favorite one was you have this convertible, uh, like a well, uh, I should use a better word. You have like a coupe and it is a convertible uh, in the sense that you can convert it from a car to a plane. I forget which, there was a few examples of the cars that turn into planes, but this was my favorite where I could actually imagine myself using it is the core problem is you've got the three vehicle problem. You got to drive to the airport, get in the plane, get out of the plane at the other airport, get into another vehicle. And if you could instead drive a vehicle to the airport, just add a wing to it, 
take off and on the other side, take the wing off and drive off. Uh, you'd be set. And they had prototypes of this that were working in something like, it was like the seventies, I think. I think it was uh, earlier. It wasn't like the forties. <laughs> but it's just like, wild. Yeah. And the model makes so much sense. Like you could, you could totally see a sharing economy style thing for the wing. You just get the car and it's totally. compatible with whatever the top of your car is. It's like a standard component. Good to go. Yeah. I mean, broadly the stagnation in like air travel, I thought was really wild, right? How it basically, because if you think about it, I mean, it's so crazy. The The Wright brothers were like 1904, I want to say, or 1906. And then we had airplanes in World War One. It's like right. 15 years later. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's insane. I mean, those, those are very early airplanes, but they made a yeah. difference in the war. I mean, yeah, it, but it's... It had guns on it, you know? Yes. Like, yeah. it, it did the job. And right. it was and then, so different from the Wright Flyer. Yeah. And World War II, we had bombers, right? Yeah. Like, Nuts. it was 35 years, and we went from, you know, Kitty Hawk to, like, a B-52. That's yeah. insane. Yeah. Right? And then it, it continues progressing through the so, 60s, and we get, like, the 747-type planes, and then it just stops. And, and I think the progress you saw from the Wright brothers to, call it, you know, World War II or slightly after is very similar to the level of progress you actually see in like software and computing technology from like, you know, 1980s to today. It's like, we just transferred all that, like that curve, that part of the curve to computing. And then just like, Mm -hmm. we're on the stagnant part of the curve for the other one. But, but yeah. And how much of that is our, our own making and how much of that is, you know, we kind of got all the low hanging fruit. That was, I think a big part of the, the book. He really calls out NASA in this regard, too, where he says that by the late 1970s, with the end of Apollo and the attempt to lower the cost of space access with the shuttle, NASA simply failed. The shuttle program had the goal of reducing the cost of orbit to $100 per pound, and the lowest they ever got was $10,000 per pound. The shuttle was supposed to launch once a week. It averaged once in 11 weeks. The shuttle blew up, killing everyone on board 1.5% of the time it was launched. If airliners had the same reliability as the shuttle, there would be 1,600 fatal crashes every day. It's absurd. <laughs> it also makes you see how safe flying is. Yeah. yeah. Air travel is absurdly safe. Yeah. I, I wonder if folks who were around for the whole shuttle program feel differently, but I didn't know the shuttle program would be construed as a failure. This was that paragraph. Yeah. That was actually the exact paragraph I was about to bring up, Matt. Uh, oh, a little mind connect. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I always thought the shuttle program was a huge success. That was my impression of it. They like crushed the PR game. It probably depends on what yardstick you're using, right? I didn't have a yardstick. I was just like, yeah, oh, I yeah. just I mean, the think fact they're cool. That we, and yeah. I mean, the fact we did put somebody on the, you know, people on the moon is a massive success. But then it's like, you know, yeah, the... Yeah, I guess, Nat, to your point, it is all about the yardstick you use. It's like, what are you right. counting? Yeah. It's like, okay, cool. We kept putting people in space. We built the International Space Station. But you went from, I mean, there were there were no rockets. And they yeah. invented rockets and put somebody on the moon in like 15 years. Right? I mean, like yeah. space rockets, right? Not like military rockets. And then in the 20 years after that, they made like such like 
you know, by, by comparison, such unimpressive progress, right? This is one topic where to your point of deal, I would be curious to hear like the counter to it, right? Like what is the, what does a NASA stand say in response to that? Yeah. Right. Like, was it just I that mean, we didn't care? Was it probably say budgets, for it? like things like that? I would imagine. Yeah. I mean, I, that, that was one point he made that I thought was really good, which was basically that in the fifties and sixties, there was this attitude of succeed by, you know, whatever cost necessary. And there was insane government funding and insane energy, like, you know, got to win the cold war, beat the Soviets, whatever. And then that attitude of, you know, progress by any means necessary kind of went away. I, I think the distinction he fails to make is like bleeding edge versus, you know, depth. Maybe that's the right counter to it. Like it's great that we had the shuttle because we put like satellites up around, we like built infrastructure in low earth orbit or like earth orbit, right? That was extremely valuable. We benefit from that every single day. It's very hard to say that was not valuable, but the bleeding edge was no longer a thing. And I think if you had inverted it, if you went fully the other way around where you're like, are you colonizing the moon, colonizing Mars, this, that, but you're not doing depth or whatever you want to call this, like the local uh, work, that would also, that would also be a waste in a different way. It's like, I don't really care for the Mars colony if I don't have a GPS on earth, right? Like I I want my satellite communications here uh, before I go there. I, I think that distinction is important. And he's only really complaining about the bleeding edge. Like the bleeding edge is gone, but you can still declare success on the local things. But is all the local stuff downstream of the bleeding edge stuff? It might be. I mean, downstream meaning like at one time it was bleeding edge, right? And then became more local. Like I'm guessing, was GPS invented for the space program? I mean, it had to be with the satellites. Like it had to be part of it. Maybe like a military application. I don't know. I'm not sure. It could be downstream of it, or it could also be upstream of it if you look at the pathing SpaceX has taken, right? That's a good point. Yeah, actually, that's that was the that's actually a really good segue because I was going to say I do think we're weirdly entering like a uh, at least a part of a a good part of the curve in terms of innovation in these areas. Like even on this flying cars point, you know, and I think you mentioned them in the book. There's like Joby Aviation or Joby Aviation. I don't know how you pronounce it. It's like a publicly traded company doing like flying taxis. And they're, I think, going to launch in New... I don't know if they have permission to launch in New York yet, but they've been trying. But Dubai uh, and Singapore, and there's like one other market, I think, that they're going to be launching in by like 2026. And it's like they have the prototypes and they they have them. It's just more like regulatory and like making sure the airspace situation will be worked out. Like it's more of those types of kinks that they have to Mm -hmm. figure out now. But it's like, hey, someone's actually working on flying taxis and it's like not far yeah. from being a reality. That's kind of cool. Well, and then and the SpaceX, go back and- right? Yeah. So this is, this is a quadcopter with propellers that point up for vertical takeoff. Then they angle forward and then they're level for cruise and then they flip again. I'm very curious to see like how hard it is to pilot these because there's, I think it's the Osprey is the military one. And then there's the Harrier, which I think is the same with, no, that's not the Harrier. Okay. I, I believe it's the Osprey. I'll double check and put in the notes. But it's like one in three of them have crashed. Wow. Wow. It's like a crazy number. It's one of the military VTOL planes that rotates the thrust from down to, la- to flat. I wonder how hard they are to pilot. Like, obviously, well, they, get, they get better. I, that's not a reason not to do it. I was going to say on that point, though, I do because there, there is this element of like, okay, yeah, if we continue to progress in a lot of this stuff, it would be so much more advanced. But there is also this element of like the reason we can have some of the progress now is because of computing, right? Like, you know, 
he he if you think about like everything it took to make the Apollo program happen, you obviously had to like, you know, just the like the math involved alone to like get everything lined up. And so there was almost no way that space travel could be commercially viable until we had serious computing progress. Right. And like to SpaceX's point, the way to bring the costs down with space travel was like reusability, right? They always use the example of imagine if you had to blow up a plane after every flight, <laughs> like right. it would be way more expensive. And maybe you could have, you know, self landing rockets without computers, but I don't think so, right? Like I, that pretty much needed you know, incredibly precise yeah. computing technology, sensors, everything like it, you know, there, there might be an argument here that, you know, we got the low hanging fruit, right? We got the like throw a rock into space version, but to get the like precision space travel, we really did need these other like computing advances. And so it kind of like made sense to stall out for a while. I go back and forth on that sometimes though, too, because like, have you guys read project Hail Mary, Andy Weir's new book? I haven't read it. I read The Martian, but not that. Okay. So it, it, it's very good. It's worth reading. Uh, this isn't too much of a spoiler, but the it, it takes its similar premise to The Martian of like a person alone, but this time he's in space on a space station. He has no idea how he got there and he has to like figure out why he's there and what he's doing. He gets like amnesia basically from deep space transport. Anyway, good book. This is much of a spoiler, but he runs into like an alien species that it turns out to be there for the same reasons he is. And they achieved space travel without ever figuring out relativity Hmm. and without some other things that we would think, oh, and without sight. Yeah. Like the the species has no concept of sight. It's all echolocation and Hmm. like sound based, which kind of makes you think like, okay, we think that we need, you know, X to happen for Y to happen and Z to happen. But you could theoretically maybe get a lot of these things without or like as a much cruder version than we're imagining right now. Or right? even like what senses do we not even have because we don't even have a concept of what that is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but like that's you think about, cool to think about, <laughs> think about like a, a self landing rocket in the seventies. Like would they have figured out a way to build like extendable propellers that could basically like gyrocopter down after the rocket launched and just let it like, settle that way i don't know right is there something crazy like that that doesn't involve you know highly precise like thrusting in the opposite direction i I mean what is what is actually shocking when you look at things that were invented pre-computing or like like i always it always boggles my mind when you look at like manufacturing facilities and how those existed pre-computing is just like the amount of things that were controlled by little pumps or levers or uh you know hinges or it's just like, oh, this thing, like, I mean, like the whole concept of uh, distillation, which is used for way more than alcohol, but that's like the easiest example, is distilling out the alcohol from something that has a smaller amount of alcohol to concentrate it. And that's entirely just done via boiling points. Like, it's just, mm-hmm. oh, this substance boils at a lower temperature than water. Therefore, it'll distill out and you just capture it as it goes into another column. It's like, you didn't need computing for any of that. But it did pre- require precise knowledge of at what temperature something boils at and being able to control that. But that, you know, you don't need computing for that, actually, which is kind of crazy. Because I would never think to do that without like, a you know, some type of like programmable thing being like, oh, if the temperature goes above this, like open up this gate, right? But 
they figured out how to do it purely by mechanical means. I was going to make the the black swan reference, right? Where like in some ways that might actually be more robust because yeah. they yeah. couldn't hyper optimize it with a computer. And so you think about architecture and we, we knew how to build buildings before we knew all of the math to precisely explain why certain structures worked. And they tended to be a lot stronger because we couldn't push them to the bleeding edge of stability using AutoCAD or whatever. <laughs> I was going to make this point earlier, but it, it fits in here as well. It's like our, our taste for risk and our risk tolerance doesn't really make much sense. Like, I think there, there was a sense, is my read, I mean, I wasn't there, but like 40s, 50s, and 60s to like take on some risk and it'd be worth, you know, the Apollo 1, for example, disaster was extremely, extremely horrifying. You just burned to death in a capsule. But there was a sense of like, oh, this is for a purpose. And I think we've lost pieces of that. And I, like the best example that comes to mind is a lot of the like self-driving car uh, drama where it's always like oh, a self-driving car had this accident. And it's like, we're not reporting on every single human driven car accident. So we have no yeah. frame of reference. And yeah. as a result, people are like, oh, I would never get into one of these. And then you like get into a cab and weave through traffic to JFK, which is probably 10 <laughs> times more dangerous. Uh, our, our risk appetite makes no sense. And and you're right. Uh, how it's also like reported. There was... Did you guys ever drive on Route 1 in uh, California? Oh, yeah. Like along the ocean? Yeah. So there's one area, I guess, where there's a 250-foot drop. Did you guys hear about this recently? Oh, yeah. The Tesla that went off there. Yeah. On purpose. The guy was like trying to kill himself and his family and like drove off in a Tesla wow. off, the edge of that, off the edge of that cliff, fell 250 feet. And not only did everyone survive... The kids, the kids over in the back seat. The only damage they had was like psychological. What? Yeah, yeah. And the rescue, the rescue people that came were like, "Wow, I've never seen a car like survive this this fall." Like it's a, it's apparently like a place where people do commit suicide there in that in that spot. And they were like, "I can't believe like everyone was fine." Like this isn't wow. the guy's charged now with attempted murder, obviously, because like yeah. it, they found out it was on purpose. But um, the like thing that I was I was going to say drop. though, the, the, the thing I was going to say is like. The headlines, if you read the headlines, it was like Tesla crashes off, like I think it's called like Devil's Canyon or something like that. And then there were all this speculation like, oh, was it on autopilot or like, you mm. know, for like a couple of days till they figured out it was yeah. a guy trying to drive off on purpose. But it's like, yep. yeah, it's very to, a deal to your point. It's like the opposite of like a innovation driven culture in that sense. It's like trying to yeah. find a way to like uh, stop it almost. Well, it seems like the prerequisite to be a tech news reporter is to have a cynical view on technology. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like I can't yeah, remember if last it, time if it I bleeds fired leads, up right? a, like. yeah. But uh, it's just so, I don't know. There's Reddit uplifting news, which is nice. That's the antidote. Uh, the, you know, the other antidote that I got from this book, actually, uh, all the historical examples that he had of yeah. the New York times being really stupid when it came to tech and I was like, oh, this has always been happening and we still made progress. So it's like, just made me feel like better about everything. <laughs> like he has some great quotes about, I think what, there was a New York Times article about how a flying machine wouldn't work for the next million years. And it was literally like, I think like- Oh a, yeah, like seven years before the Wright brothers or something like that. No, it was like the year, yeah. It was it the was, year of. It was like the year <laughs> of. Yeah. They, I think they had already done their first flight and then- yeah. <laughs> and like they had tried to tell the newspaper about it and then they ran this story instead because it was by that like government guy who uh, that Newcomb guy, happen. Simon Newcomb yeah, or something yeah. like that, right? Yeah. Yeah, there were like a few other examples of that. 
there were a few other examples of that where there was like the you know the media was like very anti the new technology or like kind of shitting on it and then uh and they even had their own experts you know people who were like well trained in that field like the guy who they were bringing up uh net uh i think he was an astronomer the one who was saying mm. it could never work so they kept like quoting yeah. him as like scientists think and like you know it that's always been happening i guess no, I think that's always been happening, right? It's like not yeah. a new phenomenon. So like made me feel more comfortable actually that like, sure, this is just a prior fact of human nature. Like there's going to mm. be a market for people who are, who want to consume that knowledge. Like it's, it's not a conspiracy, right? It's not like the New York yeah. Times is trying to hobble progress. It's like they're a media organization that's just writing what people want to read. And probably some people have always wanted to read that and will always want to read that. So then the difference becomes as a contemporary you see the bad headlines and then the history books always talk about the wins and not the headlines. So we yeah. have a rosier view of the past and yeah, that, that all checks out. Do you guys remember we discussed on a prior episode, JFK and pushing the Apollo program forward and how it almost got killed like every single year of the sixties. I remember you telling us a little bit about that. It's a nuts story. I, I forgot about it actually till Neil just mentioned this. But yeah, like now when you talk about Apollo, it's like, yeah, we went to the moon. Those were the glory days. And actually, it's actually, we barely went to the moon. Most people didn't really want to go. We forced it through. And yeah. then we went there and then we forgot about all the opposition. And now we celebrate it as glory days. Uh, God, what is the difference now? Like, is it that the federal government doesn't have teeth? Like, is that uh, what happened now? Uh, it was just reminding me. I had a, I had a friend in college, and the way he would convince people to come out and party is that he would say that I will drag you kicking and screaming, and you will thank me at the end of it. <laughs> I he remember that. Right. Yeah. He was always right. <laughs> it's the same energy. <laughs> but yeah, what happened? Do we, do we do we lose our teeth? Like, I don't know. It kind of feels that way. Well, and I wonder too, if it's just like, yeah, I don't know. Cause like, why, why lose the teeth then? Just cause there's no like big bad that we're fighting. Or? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's that. It's also like something about just like culture. It's hard to explain really hard to explain what that, what that is, but it's just like, we all kind of have a um, risk aversion. I think as a, like we all, like even us on this call, like we're, you know, none of us are working on these problems, <laughs> right? So yeah. it's like, it's just like probably everybody, like, I don't know how to explain culture. It's almost like uh, that David Foster Wallace thing, like what the fuck is water kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. Like you sometimes feel like we're just all products of a culture, but yeah, I don't know. I, like maybe it's because those people had fought in real wars or something. Like they knew what real risk was. And, you know, we think like risk is flying in an airplane is like not risky at all <laughs> like what I don't know. would it take for you to drop what you're doing and work on nanotech or any of these things assuming you are where you are now so you'd have to go and like get educated and you know the whole every step you know i think he actually does make a really good point about how good the default lifestyle is now he does he has that whole chapter on it yep. like that 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 yeah. whole topic of like the alloy which is, you know, he, he's invoking this from H.G. Wells's novel, The Time Machine. And in the novel, he goes to the future and humanity has split into two races, the Eloy and the Murdochs, Mor Morlocks. And the Morlocks are like underground building the machinery and stuff that runs society. And the mm. Eloy are like living on the surface in this utopian paradise where they don't have to like do anything or worry about 
their basic needs being fulfilled, uh, but they're all like lazy and unambitious and not trying to do anything because they have this like perfect lifestyle. And even though people think that like, or some people think the world is ending or whatnot, it's like, we do live in this incredible world now, if you're in the West where like you can, I mean, it, you, you can see this if you live in a like rapidly transitioning city or like the way houses are built now versus 30 years ago. Like there's so much space, right? Like you can have so much room and you have these incredible cars and you can travel four or five times a year for like surprisingly reasonable prices. And you've got computers and phones and infinite entertainment on demand. And it's kind of like, like, why bother? <laughs> like, why, why would I try like you to have a go great like, life? Yeah. 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 Like, I mean, I even, I saw this other, I saw something else on Twitter the other day that uh, like made me very sad because it was so true, which was like every guy with a popular and, you know, women too, but this is like mostly guys with a really popular YouTube account of them, like playing through a hundred percent of a video game and finding every single teeny tiny Easter egg and detail and exploring everything like a hundred years ago, that guy would have been in the woods finding every single beetle that lived in that mm. area and like, fi- you know, creating progress for society. But that like that instinct has been like redirected to these useless tasks. And I think we just have like a lot of that now. And so and it's like to his point, too, even if you are like a crazy, ambitious, mathematically minded person, like you don't go into physics anymore. You go into like high frequency trading or, yeah. uh, you yeah. know, some like one of these more like ethereal things. I don't know. I found that yeah. kind of compelling. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe it's a good thing, right? He's like in, I think it was the year 1700 or 1800. It was like every farmer created 1.1 persons of food. Yeah. So yeah. you needed most people to be farmers. And now it's like one farmer can create food for 40 people. And yeah, that's great that not everyone has to do that anymore. Like totally. right, playing video games is better. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, yeah, the, I think that that's the helpful thing to keep in mind, too, is we're talking about some of these things like the Wright brothers and the space race and, you know, the quantum and like basic computing stuff. But when you think about it, all of those things were done by like 0.01% of the yeah. population over the last hundred years. And like everybody else was, you know, going to work, farming, whatever. Right. So like we might we might also just be setting the bar too high. Like it could actually be now that 0.02% are doing crazy things, but we're expecting a hundred years of progress to be happening like right now concurrently. And it's just unreasonable. Maybe there's probably more happening now than concurrently than at any point in time. The risks are also different, right? Like when you're talking about scaling a farmer from creating 1.1 farmers of food to 40, it's very immediately clear if if you're hungry, right? And now I think yeah. he said something like the population of the the world population that is uh, like underserved with food is something like nine percent. I forget the exact. It's like gone down tremendously. Like it still exists. Low, yeah, yeah, it still exists, but it's gone down tremendously. And when you think about I don't know, multi-planetary species, the risk there feels very far. It just right. doesn't even feel real. It's like oh, we might be gone. It's like well, if I'm gone. I'm gone. Right. Yeah, there's a very different motivation because, yeah, and he uses the example of like type one, two, three, four, and five transportation cultures and like a a type one, like a type one has shoes, right? Mm -hmm. And until the last like 10 years, something like 40% 
of the world wasn't even type one, right? Like people couldn't even afford shoes until the last like 20 years. And so going from no shoes to shoes is like a massive improvement uh, in like your quality of life. And then going from shoes to bikes is another massive one. And bikes to cars is huge. But as it stands, going from cars to like flight or cars to like space travel, it's really hard to see like what that gets you exactly. You flip right. from necessity to luxury. It's like, I don't need to go to Paris in six hours. Yeah. I would like Although I, I also wonder how much of this is just like a backward looking thing, right? Because like, I, I also think about, uh, I think I've used this story on the podcast before, but like I went to Africa with my family like 10 years ago and like we ended up having dinner with this like British woman who was there trying to like give shoes to all the kids living in the like Maasai villages. And it's like, they don't want shoes, <laughs> right? Like yeah. they're super happy without shoes. But for us, imagining a life without shoes would be pretty bad, especially without with concrete and everything around. Just like imagining not having a car or any kind of transportation is like hard to imagine now. And so you can also imagine how if we did have a flying car that could, you know, take us to Paris for lunch for 20 minutes and then bring us back, like, once you get used to that, it's probably pretty hard to say no to, right? Yeah, I think you're right about that. I yeah. mean, he that's a point he brought up even about like roads, like increasing, uh, building more roads doesn't really reduce traffic. It just increases traffic largely because more people are, more people they, they wanted to yeah. do that, but they couldn't do it before. So now they're doing it. Um, yeah. I, Adil, just backtracking for a second to something you said, which I actually think is a, it brings up like an interesting question. So I think part of our issue is like it, why we made so much progress during those those decades is we had the external pressure of like there were two world wars then the cold war and a lot of it was won and based on science and technology mm. basically like we kind of want like world war ii the big reason we won was i mean our manufacturing capability and then our war machine like the military that we could you know with the bombers and then the atomic bomb obviously and then same thing with the Cold War. It was so like tech driven. And there was like an external like enemy to fight against. Yeah. And now it's kind of like, why? Right? Like we all have such good lives. Like at that time, it was like, well, if we don't win this war, like the Nazis are going to take us over or like the Japanese mm -hmm. will take us over. Right? It was like there was an external pressure. And now, yeah, I mean, why would like we all have great lives? It's like, I mean, why it's would I fourth turning do this? You know? Yeah. yeah. Fourth yeah, turning I mean, is one thing. I, yeah, I also, if, you, if you overlay the fourth turning with this book, it actually lines up pretty perfectly. It does. Right? Where it's like but it, it came brings, out of the previous fourth turning of yeah. World War II type yep. stuff and then insane progress happened and then everybody got lazy and stagnation. comfy and it, yep. stagnation stopped. And so whenever we have our next fourth turning, unless we already did, then uh, the next will be coming hopefully out. it can yeah. start again. But yeah. there is like a game theory question here, which I don't think he answered, which I, I still... Like, and maybe there is no answer, but like, why wouldn't a more top down society like China, for example, just do this? Like, just be like, okay, we're just going to like force everyone into these, you know, 12 fields that are going to be the most important for us and put all of our excess capital that we get into, or not even excess, just invest in this as our main priority. Cause it's like, hey, if we get earthquake yeah. machines or weather machines, like, we win. Like they we are doing more on the world. They're not, I yeah. don't know what, like on the bleeding edge, what they're doing. That's probably very secret, but the visible stuff, like the fully automated port and like tens of thousands of miles of 
uh, maybe not tens of thousands, thousands of miles of high speed rail, you know, super tall buildings in every city, like all these things. Aren't they building like a hundred nuclear reactors too? Like they're going ham. They on have power 50. Now, aren't they? Uh, I don't know how many they're building, um, but they, they're so more they on this. They're more on this than uh, it feels like we are at least. Yeah, because because a lot of the constraints that he brought up are like cultural and political, and it's like they don't really have that constraint. I mean, I'm sure they have their own the internal teeth, politics, teeth. but yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you know, if it's for better or worse, I, I do I do like that the federal government in the U.S. can't just like bulldoze neighbors. No, I totally something. agree. Like, no, I totally agree. Yeah, I mean, we also couldn't yeah. do a COVID lockdown the way that they did in the same like that's like a yeah. good and bad, right. It's like yeah, we don't have the teeth to do these types of forced investments, but we also don't have the teeth to just like shut down your population yeah. and lock them in their houses for like yeah. months on end, which I, is great. Guess, yeah. I like our system. I like living in our system a lot better. I was more thinking about like a game theory thing of just like, you know, you kind of have like, you know, whoever solves this is going to like be yeah. the prime player for the next, you know, hundred plus years. Probably the thing that feels very missing to me is any positive science fiction. Like no one has, not no one, but like arguably few people have a sense of like, what does good tech look like in 50 years? And yeah. like, I heard, I heard one recently that I thought was very novel and inspirational in a ways. So I went over to my friend Michelle's place and he just like opened the tap, poured me a glass of water. And he was like, isn't this insane? Yeah. And I was like, that, that is insane. Actually. It is <laughs> three. It's clean. He just put it into a cup and gave it to me. And he was like, you know, what if you could do this with food, right? Like, imagine you have Boston Dynamics robots, like, perfectly tilling the, whatever, 40-odd percent of the U.S. that is farmland. And it's at basically no cost because, you know, it's just robots. Pair it with ideas from this book with, like, atomic batteries and so on. Um, you could turn on the food faucet and eradicate that last 9% of uh, folks who don't have You're enough food. I don't know that that is a very inspiring, positive spin on all of it. It's like, okay, this is where you utilize everything for good, and it anchors on a miracle in front of you today. The turning on the faucet, which is a miracle. Well, I and mean, to your point of deal, there isn't a lot is of like. <laughs> well, a lot, like, a lot of our lives are a miracle. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I'm saying like, no, I didn't mean that like in a in a no, kidding, like in like a promoting made you think way. I meant more just like in the telecommunications world, right? Like internet technology, it it we have actually achieved so many freaking miracles in the last like 20 years like i'm sure you guys yeah. remember like when we were growing up you could imagine having three people on video and audio and like recording this like yeah. people Especially anywhere in like, the world can listen to it yeah. when aim <laughs> came guys. out like that was yeah. sick right like you yeah. could message anybody anywhere like when text messaging first became a thing like it was so cool yeah like this is insane like we're all three of us are in different places right now and like we can see and talk in real time and it's being recorded and uploaded and like when we launch, when we release this in a couple of days, like anyone in the world can just listen to it. Well, it the thing with the food miracle, though, I think is a little different. Is like this is a miracle with low cost. Like I could let go of this if someone was like, "You're done with video chat." I'm like, "All right, like whatever. Yeah. I'll go back to phone calls." Yeah. But if someone gave me the food faucet, or if someone said we're taking away the water faucet, like the food one is an inspirational, forward-looking one we should work towards. The water one is one I would fight to keep. Like, yeah, we need that kind of sci-fi. Not just fight to yeah. keep like your life yeah. kind of depends on it. Like you don't have any alternatives in the way that we've grown up. 
It's just well, like you're going to be dead if you can't get water. <laughs> like you don't know how to get water. I don't know how to find water on my own. Like <laughs> I mean, clean water, water clean, you know, faucet, make it safe. Yeah. <laughs> Have you guys read or watched or listened to any aspirational sci-fi in the Nothing last like new. 10, 20 years? Nothing new. Now, what what would count? Like what's an example of aspirational sci-fi? I, I mean, I thought the... <laughs> Yeah, not Black Mirror. Right? Yeah, like I, I'm just trying to think of all the sci-fi stuff that I've seen, and like it all has this undertone of like, yeah, there might be better technology, but the future is going to be like fucked in some way, right? Yeah, even Interstellar is like uh, that's yeah. the exact example yeah. I was thinking of just now. Yeah. Is Interstellar's that way? Like, I just read this book, Children of Time, really good, but it's like mm. you know, civilization collapse. The you know, like three body problem kind of like is in this realm too. You know, it's generally pessimistic about humanity. Uh, like, Neil, you, you briefly interjected with the Martian. I would even say the Martian is like I think the Martian's pessimistic. Yeah, too. exactly. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Like it it's it's individually optimistic, but societally pessimistic. Yeah. Because even in the book, you know, he's and the movie, he's dealing with people on Earth just like not really caring <laughs> about saving him for a lot of it. Yeah, right? I mean that's more near term future. But the yeah. fact that like it seems like a world exactly like today, but we actually have a human on Mars is kind of cool. That, I don't yeah. know. That's why I thought that's it right. was like like it wasn't any new technology in the sense that like oh this doesn't look like something that we could do right now. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, the human part you're right. Like they were still being like bureaucratic yeah. and like being idiots. But that might just be a fact of human nature. <laughs> like I feel like well, the yeah, more I, wonder... I get, I'm just like convinced mm. of that that they're just that is not going to change. It's just how much teeth they have, I think, versus like other people might have. Mm. Or uh, Ready Player One is sort of like a doubly pessimistic one because it's like not yeah. only is the world fucked, but the basically the only exciting thing about the future is that we could like escape it and live in this video game, right? Like that's yeah. pretty bleak. Yeah. <laughs> wow, yeah, it really is bad. Jurassic Park, Avatar. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to construct a story without some kind of There has to be a conflict. Struggle, but yeah. Yeah. Over but here, I, like, the nemesis is always science. It's never. Yeah. It's never where, the where is the like, you know, where is the romance story that happens to be set in a futuristic environment? Right. Like. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. Does sci-fi necessitate that the science is part of the conflict? It's, it seems like it shouldn't. Right. But maybe it does. Maybe that. Maybe people who are interested in it need it too. I mean, is there good old sci-fi that would meet this bar? Yeah, that's a good question too, right? Is it change or has it just always been that way? I mean, there's the Jetsons, but it's not. I mean, that's yeah, Hanna Barbera, right? It's like fun. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He does kind of over invoke the Jetsons reference, doesn't he? I wonder if there are <laughs> other ones. It made me want to go back and watch it again, and you know, it also made me. Yeah. He didn't reference this, but it made me want to go back and watch Wallace and Gromit again. You know, rocket to go to the moon to eat cheese and like wear pants <laughs> yeah. that move you around. And I was like, damn! I was like, this was the the clay sci-fi. Yeah, <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> Uh, one thing we didn't talk about, I don't know, I didn't have very strong reactions to this, but I figure I'd flip the topic before we wrap, is nanotech. Mm-hmm. Like, it's cool. It felt the furthest off of the things in the book, and the things you could do with it, I had trouble, like the space pier, where you could build a 100-kilometer really tall, cool. pretty cool, uh, it's a 100-kilometer tall pier into space, uh, and then just launch off of it, like, I just had trouble picturing. I'm like, 
I don't know if anything there resonated with you guys. I had seen something about space elevators before, which is kind of a very similar concept, where it's like you have a platform high above where you're launching from. Uh, But I think this was better explained than I'd previously... Like, I still can't picture it in my head what it would look like. I mean, I have a picture in my head. I don't know how accurate it is, but it's such a cool concept. (laughs) It is. Well, and the, the description for it, I thought was crazy too, just that it would have to also be 300 kilometers long at the base, which means like the, the base would strip would span from Austin to Dallas basically. (laughs) Right. Like maybe a little bit farther. And so imagine you're driving for three or four hours and it's just a building the whole way and it goes up (laughs) so high that you like can't even see the top. But you know, it's probably going to happen. Like, I don't see why it wouldn't, especially the the thing he mentioned in that description that I thought was the most interesting was building it out of diamond mm-hmm. because yep. we've gotten better and better at synthesizing diamond and it's just like putting carbon atoms together, I guess. And I, it actually made me wonder why I haven't seen that in more like visions of the future. Like, why wouldn't you just build everything out of diamond? Like it should theoretically so be very cheap, yeah. be incredibly strong. Yeah. Right. Like it seems like spaceships and space elevators and all of that. Like, why wouldn't they be built out of that? Are they too rigid also the for some reason? Thing is, I don't know. Heavy. No well, although heavy wouldn't he matter suge- as much in that scenario. Yeah. yeah. It can carry its own load. Actually. He has it in the book. Uh, it can carry like 50 times its own load. Um, wow. Okay. Yeah. So then some, some crazy number. I don't remember. Uh, but the interesting thing now with what you were saying, where like we can already synthesize diamonds, like, we accelerate the natural process, but the way he pitches it is you just construct it atom by atom. You're right. right. Yeah. There's a whole new ball game. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, so like if we're building these, at, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So if we're building these nano factories anyway, then yeah, maybe there's something even stronger, right? Like how does graphene compare to diamond? I don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure. Neil, the space elevator stuff you read, is that the one where they like, have a long cable. I believe so. It's not so actually yeah. Nece- okay. It's different. Yeah. I think I've seen that. Yeah. Graphene is like stronger a planet than a diamond. Space. So graphene would be better. Wow. Then diamond. Wow. Does it look good on a ring? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is, this image is kind of wild on Wikipedia about the space elevator. Probably not the scale, I'm guessing, (laughs) this picture. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, these ideas are so cool, though. How does it stay taut? Is it like the centrifugal force just like keeps it straight? I also feel like it would have to curve, right? That would be some drag. A counterweight at the upper end keeps the center of mass well above geostationary orbit. This produces enough upward centrifugal force from Earth's rotation to fully counter the downward gravity, keeping the cable upright and taut. Wow. Cool. Things we could do. Uh, did you guys ever subscribe to like popular science or popular mechanics back in the day? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. I was subscribed to that when I was like a kid. I feel like when I was a kid, those were awesome. I saw one at the doctor's office yeah. the other day and I was like, this is just whatever now. Uh, but as a kid, like I remember when they were like, you know, uh, building the, uh, the Burge in Dubai, they had like a whole, I think it was popular mechanics. They had like a whole issue on it and they had one for the seven, eight, seven, two, I think. 
I mean, those were just as maybe I was a kid and I had a bad frame of reference and today's are equally cool. And I just haven't looked back on them, but I just remember. Devouring no, I remember those. being way more into that back then. Cause yeah, I mean, yeah. to the point of like our ambitions feel smaller, maybe it's just cause we're older. I don't know. But like, I've noticed this with even like with writing too, is like a lot of, it seems like I encounter many more people who are trying to like build a newsletter or start a blog than are trying to like write books. And yeah. it's kind of interesting because if you, if you look at it, like historically, like articles don't last, like nobody, you know, even for a writer you love, you can probably not name more than one or two articles by them, but you like know their books. Right. And so if your goal is to like put writing in people's hands that like impacts them and that they remember, you know, an article has like 1% of the impact of a book as in terms of like where your effort should go. But that's like, it's easier to make money there and it's easier. It's like safer. It's the lean startup version. Right. And so it feels like there's a lot of people who would have previously aspired to authorship and who just like do the article thing instead. I wonder if this is just like a systemic thing, right? Like or yeah, people who would have gone into like movies books and now more people are writing short form. That's possible too. Yeah, there, there's certainly more up. books now. Right. Yeah. Like yeah, that's, that's know. the positive spin. Uh, like would the people writing blogs write books or would they just not write? That's a good question too. Yeah. I don't know. That's also, the thing, right? Yeah. Like, maybe they're they're right. Both. like yeah. Matt, I've sent your decomplication to probably a hundred people. Crony beliefs I've sent to so many people uh premium mediocre life like there's so many essays where i'm like i would have not read i would have not read a book on crony beliefs right you know um it didn't but I'll need send to that be a essay book. to anyone it didn't need to be a book. yeah uh, i think that maybe what you're teasing at is sometimes these they feel like cheap wins right like the total well, volume the, might be up but yeah but i actually think in the examples you just gave a deal you kind of like hint at the same problem which is yeah like how many books have you recommended to people oh, right well, but I think I'm an yeah. there. Yeah. Right, right, right. But but even, yeah. you know, as, as somebody who reads a lot, right? Like you you probably still have recommended way more books than you've recommended articles. Yes. Right? That's like, true. Fact. You've yes. got those three examples. I'm sure you could come up with like five or ten more examples. And there there are like a couple people who consistently put out fantastic articles, right? Like Paul Graham. But there aren't a lot of those people. Right. I could not give I think you it's 20 like, essays I would recommend, but I could give you 20 books on the spot. Yeah. Totally. Which is interesting yeah. because a book takes 10 times longer to read. All right. And I would suspect that most people spend more time reading articles than books, but like the books are what get recommended. Right. Like it's this weird, you know. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I've thought about this problem a lot recently. It's also a lot harder to write. I mean, you, you obviously know about this, Nat, but it's like, a, I think a lot harder to write a good book than a good article. That's true. Not not saying it's easy Maybe. to write a good article. I think that's also really hard. Right. But I think it's like a good book where you actually walk away being like, wow, there was a great core idea there. It wasn't like filler. I was I was entertained or like wanted to keep reading it. Like there's, that's really hard to do in a book length. Yeah, you know you're, yeah. you you can really overstay your welcome in a book and just be like fifty <laughs> pages in and just be like this sucks. I'm I'm done. Uh, <laughs> Actually, that's that's another interesting question. Have you guys ever read a book and then you said like, wow, that was way too short, or like, I really wish that was longer? There were definitely like yeah. uh, fiction books I've felt that for sure. Yeah. Where I'm like, I wish like I really liked this world. I wish this world yeah, like, yeah. had more 
Uh, what about a nonfiction book, though? Have you ever read a nonfiction book and been like, this was way too short? I have to think about that. Yeah, I don't know. I, I can't think of one. Usually they're too long, right? Usually yeah, they're too you can, long. You can think of tons that are too long. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to check my reading list. There has I have to like, look at my bookshelf. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I could have read more of this, to be honest. This is one where if they had another 100 pages, I would have gone for it, right? But uh, it, yeah. if, he, if he had more, I, I was getting pretty tired of the like flying car math and the, the like examples. whining by the end of it, for yeah. lack of a better term, right? Like he, he would need, he would need like a, a, yeah. broad, a slightly broader topic, I think. Like I don't, I think this topic in this book could have actually been fine. shorter. Yeah. But yeah. 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 It didn't also, drag though. Uh, like I enjoyed this. This is our second Stripe Press book that has been excellent, and it's made yeah. me wonder whether we should just read a bunch of Stripe Press books. Like there's the Art of Learning Science and Engineering, and then there's uh, there's a couple on my shelf that I saw, and I was like, I I kind of want to pick these up next. They seem promising, and they also feel good. I don't know. Have you guys knocked on the cover of this book? Uh, oh, the the production it's quality like is phenomenal. Yeah. 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 Actually, another straight press book I'm just looking that I've read. I've read is um, that's actually excellent. Is the making of Prince of Persia? Have you heard oh, about this? I've heard about it. Yeah, yeah. It's just like the guy who is like the inventor of this game, and it's just like his journal, basically. And it's awesome. Like it's so entertaining because he's just like this guy in his early 20s who's like trying to make something and like thinks what he's making sucks and like one day thinks it has potential. And then like the next day is like, no, this sucks again. It's just like struggling. It's like the creative process kind of in real time. And he also is just like meeting all these people, like some of whom you've heard of who were not famous at, at that time, you know, from like the tech world because he was, he was making a video game, but that was kind of at the cutting edge at that time. It wasn't like, you know, PlayStation or anything was out. Yeah, that was Stripe Press too. That that book is excellent. It's just like very interesting, but also because it wasn't meant to be a book, it was just a his journal. Well, and this this book was originally self published as an ebook, like, and then Stripe found it and republished it. Hmm. Uh, which one was that one called? Oh, the Making of Prince of Persia. Wow, it's just straight Prince up journals. Of Persia, yeah, yeah, it's just a journal. The other ones. Yeah, the other ones I've really wanted to read are The Dream Machine. Oh, and then yeah. the two I just referenced, which were The Art of Doing Science and Engineering. And then this one has a dope title Scientific Freedom, the Elixir of Civilization. Just like, and it's short, it's, uh, it's 230 some pages. Little book. We should definitely do, the, do more of these. Yeah, what are we doing next? Are we doing Peloponnesian uh, War, War, but that's just me and you Cool. next week. And then after and then, that, you guys get to pick the one after that. Ooh. That's exciting. All right, Nat, let's let's pick a I'll very fun shelf. one. Okay. What are we doing after that one, though? Like the next classic book? The next, uh, oh, good great question. Books. Yeah. Let's see. The Scientific Freedom book looks awesome, though. We should definitely plan to do that at uh, some point. To do that, yeah. We also three body. It's problem. kind of on we this should topic. Start reading that. Yeah, yeah. the three body Get problem. Three body yeah, problem going. Yeah, I need to start that. Oh, we're doing. Uh, wow, man, we we got to put this into a doc because we also want to do permutation city three body problem. A thousand books from two thousand years ago. We have a lot. Gotta start recording <laughs> every day. <laughs> 
Man, if we had a sponsor, I would gladly do that. <laughs> yeah. like, oh, that would be so fun. <laughs> that would be nice. So I'm whoever just... wants to fund us reading and talking about books. <laughs> Let us <laughs> know. We need like a grant. <laughs> yeah. Hey, before we wrap, I, there's one superlative that must be handed out, which is the most insane idea in this book. And it was mm-hmm. the course of maybe two sentences, and I feel the need to call it out, which was launching people into space by putting them in a steel capsule and then uh, detonating 10 nuclear bombs behind them underground. <laughs> and then using the force of that. I was like, what? <laughs> I'm glad. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad someone like thought of this. <laughs> but yeah, they, there was a guy, what was his name? But apparently he spent like years thinking about it in the 50s. He got like obsessed incredible. with the idea. Well, it, it makes me think um, this is a totally left field reference, but there's a really popular computer game. I think it's on consoles too, called team fortress two. And in, and like one of the characters you can play is like a soldier with a missile launcher on his shoulder. And so you like can shoot missiles, rockets at people. And somebody figured out early on that he could like hurt himself too. And so if they jumped in the air and shot a rocket at their feet, it would blow up under them and send them like flying across the map. Oh, and so this like previously very immobile character became a hyper mobile character because he could fly anywhere with like really well launched rockets at his feet. It's basically that idea, but for space. <laughs> well, I, the other thing kind of on that topic, Adil was his solution or his idea for how we could do fusion energy. Where he was basically like, mm. the idea of doing fusion directly just doesn't seem to work very well or like we're a long way off. But in the meantime, yeah. we could detonate hydrogen <laughs> bombs underground in caverns full of steam, have them superheat the water molecules to push all the steam up through a piston and then use steam energy powered by hydrogen bombs. <laughs> I, have, like, I have the paragraph up. The, sen- <laughs> the concluding sentence is... Even funnier, the concluding sentence is, however, the requirement of producing a steady supply of hydrogen bombs was a major liability. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, no so shit. I wonder, though, how hard they are to produce, like once you've designed well, it, right? Is it like, is it one of those things where like the net marginal cost of producing another Hydrogen bomb. Not talking about the practicality of the idea, but just from like a purely cost benefit. Yeah, yeah. Like, is it the production of them that's the problem? Is that is that where the bottleneck is? I mean, well, we have like seven thousand or something. We have a lot, yeah. And then I think we'll Russia has those. another several thousand. Start with those. <laughs> start with those. I was going to say, some, sometimes the math stuff like that I did find really enlightening because it's sort of like a first principles thinking, and that phrase is overused, but this is a good example of it where he talks about like traveling to Mars. And he says that if you accelerated at a steady one G of force, which would be super comfortable, if you accelerated at one G for a day and then coasted for three days and then decelerated by one G, you could get to Mars in five days, which not that bad, right? Not that bad. Yeah. Like five day trip to Mars. And, you know, if you increase that to two Gs, right, then you could probably do it in, what does that come out to? I guess there's a few ways you can do it. It depends on when you stop accelerating, but you know, it might be like three days. I mean, it's not that long of a trip. It's not that long. I mean, people forget that before airplanes, like to get across the Atlantic was not 
you know, a yeah. six hour trip. It's like three weeks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was not, it wasn't like, oh, you go to take a red eye to London. Like it was like, no, I'm going on like a multi-week journey. <laughs> yep. And no video chat to check in along the way. Exactly. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's like, that's that that actually that changes insane. things. Yeah. Like think about how fucking soft we are now. Like you used to just <laughs> yeah. be like, all right, peace guys. Like I'm sailing to America. Might die on the way. Like yeah. might never come back. I'll, you I'll won't even you know if, if I make it. You yeah. won't even know if I'm alive for a while. Exactly. Like, Check for a letter in like a few months. <laughs> yeah. How does it, now it's like I have to go on a 12 hour flight to China. Like, yeah. wow. Oh, I can't check my Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> Do Wi Fi is not working? <laughs> well, yeah. In flight, Wi Fi is not working. <laughs> oh, Drown a champagne, guys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the US at its peak had 31,000 nuclear warheads. Good lord. And now we're down to 3,000. So I was looking this up because I said 7K and I was curious. But 31,000. Fucking nuts. We could have totally it's done right the chamber to blow up with the, the world, steam. Like, Yeah. <laughs> how did they retire them? Like, how do you go from 31,000 to 3,000? Carefully. You get a free one if you win the lottery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just, I don't think I just got do that target joke. practice on Antarctica. <laughs> you know what? You know what is interesting though. Like, I wonder if there's a way to like use them. Can you detonate an atomic bomb in space? I think so. So, like, couldn't you use that as like a thruster for a rocket? Like, after you're already in orbit or something? Like, yeah, because so you wouldn't care about it. the radiation in that scenario. We we detonated so. Starfish Prime. In space, maybe you do care about the radiation because it would gravitate towards the Earth and then rain down, wouldn't it? Uh, but I guess compared to the radiation that's already in from the sun, yeah, it like, might not be any worse. I don't know, yeah, because I think our atmosphere protects us a lot from that, yeah, true. So, like, from a concentration perspective, I don't know. The U.S. has conducted five nuclear tests in space. Hmm. Oh, wow, cool! Yeah. So, you can do it, I guess, theoretically. Yeah. If you Remember, directed the blast is what I'm saying. Like, let's say you, you know, used conventional chemical fuel to get to space. Then you launch or use atomic bombs as your little thrusters. And maybe yeah. you can get to Mars faster. Yeah. <laughs> crazy. The fact that this was even in the book, I was like, <laughs> nuts. All, All right. right. Should we wrap? Yeah. Good time. Let's wrap. Okay, so, so yeah, we'll do Peloponnesian War next for anybody who wants to join with that. We'll do the three body problem trilogy in like a month or so. I don't know. How long do you guys want for that? If we're let's doing check in on that them, in like, yeah, in like, yeah. let's check in in like 10 check days and weeks. see where we are. Cool. <laughs> yeah. And then we'll figure out the other nonfiction book we have coming and let y'all know about that too. Permutation City. Yep. We've got a lot. Oh, yeah, it's going right. to be exciting. Permutation City. Yeah, we got a lot of good ones coming. If you In the meantime, this episode, leave us a. Oh, you know, I'll, it's my first time. You can do it, a deal. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You go. You go. You go. You do no, no, Adil, go for like, it. I'll wait. You do the thing where you wait. Hey, <laughs> no, leave us you a know, review. I'll doesn't wait. doesn't add anything to the uh, outline, but you know, wants to take all the credit at the end. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if you like this episode, message me and Neil on Twitter. And if you don't, <laughs> then Matt's your guy. 
uh, delete TikTok and Instagram and uh, <laughs> uh, leave us five stars on Spotify and subscribe to our Patreon. Patreon is not real. But, uh, <laughs> me, me and Neil had a moment there of like, wait, a deal knows the Patreon's not real. <laughs> no, 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 I know. I was like, who's running the bill? I was like, someone's running Yeah, I was like, oh shit, we have a Patreon. <laughs> a deal's just been cleaning just up been this whole thing. Yeah. deal's like, oh yeah, we have a few hundred subscribers, baby. <laughs> uh, Alrighty. Uh, uh, we'll see y'all next time. See you next time.